Welcome to Transform Now, the podcast brought to you by robotic process automation pioneer, SSNC Blue Prism. Digital transformation has the potential to reshape the way companies service their customers, engage their employees, and manage their operations. Whether you're looking to develop strategies, tactics, or best practices to positively impact the future of work, or you're curious to see how other companies have successfully navigated their digital transformation programs, then this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform now. Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Hairston with SSC Blue Prism. Welcome to the Transform Now podcast. Today, I'm happy to have two guests on the show. The first is Chris Johannesson, an automation and AI expert and the editor of the Journal of AI, Robotics, and Workplace Automation. My second guest is Dr. Lou Bockenheimer, CTO of the Americas at SSSC Blue Prism. Both Chris and Lou have been on the podcast before, and today I will be talking with them about the ethics of automation and AI. Gentlemen, welcome. Let's start with some introductions. Chris, why don't you start us off? Hello, everybody, and hello again, Brad. Chris Johannesson, I'm, as uh, Brad mentioned, editor of the Journal of AI, Robotics and Workplace Automation. This journal launched about a year ago, published by Henry Stewart Publications out of the UK. And we just had a special edition on ethics and AI. So this uh, topic is uh, top of mind. There's some other things going on in the news as well that continue to bring AI ethics to the forefront. That's just a part-time role that I serve in this journal. I've been doing management consulting work in the automation and AI space for the past several years with firms such as McKinsey and SIP Partners. And before that, some of the early work in automation and AI, going back to my time with GE and including time that I spent with eBay Enterprise as well as leading a marketing practice on behalf of Omnicom Philadelphia, where we dabbled in some, a little bit of AI as part of marketing automation. Awesome. Thank you. Lou. As Brent said, I'm Dr. Lou Bachelheimer, the CTO of the Americas for Blue Prism. I've been with SNC Blue Prism for almost four and a half years now, and it's been an exciting time for both automation and AI. Before that, I was with IBM's Watson and Cloud Platform team, working with some of the AI and ML tools over there. And currently we're at a, I wanna say an inflection point in how machine learning and AI are being used in your day-to-day -day automations that makes this conversation particularly relevant. So thanks for having me. It's great to have both of you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Well, now that we are in full swing in the era of intelligent automation, the topic of ethics at the intersection of RPA and AI has definitely taken on more importance. Just this month, the White House Office of Science and Technology took this topic center stage by releasing its first ever AI Bill of Rights, which defines five principles for making automated systems work for the American people. We will certainly talk about that today. If you look at just where ethics and AI have emerged in recent history, there've been several now infamous examples of truly unethical AI. 
There's the 2014 example where an AI-powered recruiting software ended up overwhelmingly preferring male candidates. There's the chatbot created back in 2016, which after being released on Twitter, started quickly spewing racist and misogynist messages. And in 2016, an algorithm called Compass was used in the U.S. court systems to predict the likelihood of offenders committing another crime. A journalist came forward and exposed that this model predicted twice as many false positives for minority offenders. So, of course, all of these are AI gone wrong stories. They do not diminish the many, many ways that AI has had a very positive impact on our society and in enhanced automation for that matter. So I really want to get into the dialogue with both of you to talk through this kind of stuff. Lou, let me start with you. Now that machine learning models are enabling decisions and the automation of more complex business processes, do you see ethics becoming a bigger concern for automation teams and their executive sponsors? Oh, absolutely. If you think about automation, you really can't get past the need to be including machine learning and artificial intelligence, because otherwise automation are just hands on a keyboard with no brain behind them. But then you hit all the issues with AI or machine learning that you brought up before. I think these fall into two different categories. The first side you can think of as issues with the model themselves, how they were built, how they were trained, what sort of bias they might have inherently. And the second category being issues with how the models are being used. So that could be, for example, mass usage of facial recognition technology. Typically, when we're looking at automation use cases, we're normally looking at the first category, when we're looking at the in any inherent bias in the model. And that previously had been an issue. There was a situation where some Algorithms have been put into place to help approve mortgage loans that, again, turned out to have a racial bias. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when you're looking at customers, there are two ways to handle this. And the first is to be very careful with what sort of data you use, what your corpus of data is that you use to train that machine learning model. And the second is to make sure that you have auditability at every step. We typically see, we typically used to see machine learning engines that were more of a black box, but nowadays, just as you were asking, customers are much more concerned with maintaining ethics. And as a result, they find it very important to make sure that any machine learning or AI solution they put into place has a full audit trail to explain how it made every decision it made. Interesting. Chris, let me ask you. From your perspective, which industries do you see leading the charge in addressing ethics in automation and AI? There's a bit of a classical model out there about technology adoption, which goes back to an old book. I think it came out in the early 1960s. A, a book, I believe the title was around the diffusions of innovations, as I recall, top of my head. So even though we cited a few technology firm examples earlier, certainly companies like that, they're right there on the vanguard of addressing the ethics in automation and AI, not only for their own use, 
But many of these corporations, they're not only using this stuff for their own purposes, but they're trying to bring software applications out to the market that leverage automation and AI. So they have to be able to educate everybody else. Okay, we're give us some ideas, guidelines. You think about with that too, Tesla and the autopilot feature, the driver assistance feature in their automobiles. Once in a while, you still see something in a press that a automated car, maybe not Tesla's, but somebody else is testing out like an automated pizza delivery car, I believe in, in Arizona, got in an accident and, and hurt somebody. Uh, or even more recently, the, uh, in the press, the automated chess player who had a robotic arm and pinched some kids' fingers. I believe that happened overseas somewhere. So the technology firms are certainly there. With that too, as Dr. Lou mentioned in financial services, regulated industries, because they are always very risk averse, they're certainly kind of up there on the vanguard as well with being aware of, of risk and bias because they don't want to get in any regulatory snafus. That's uh, bad press. It could be operational risk for them, let alone other larger financial risk. Healthcare, of course, you, you know, once in a while you read about something called robotic surgery and other health, healthcare innovations, anything directly touching a person, they're certainly going to be weighing in more of these ethical concerns than say somebody trying to test out a new way to automate paper scanning to reduce errors and scan more paper faster with less error tracking. A person may be hurt by that in some way, depending on an error, something being misread towards an application, say for a loan, but the piece of paper itself is not. So when it comes to touching people, or, or you can even see with animals or the environment, that's going to be an issue. And also, like Dr. Lou mentioned, it's just becoming a larger issue with these ESG concerns. The S and ESG is societal or social. Mm -hmm. With that comes ethics. Are you doing the right thing by your people, the people that you're providing services or products to, or the environment and the world in general? So AI <laughs> and the application of AI that you know can be framed against those contexts as well. Chris, you mentioned self-driving cars. It reminded me of a 60 Minutes episode that focused on self-driving cars, and they were interviewing a professor from Carnegie Mellon. I recall the interviewer asking him, are these self-driving cars, these automated you know, machines, are they, are they benevolent? Can they make benevolent decisions? And I remember they, they got into this debate and the professor said, they're only benevolent if we program them to be benevolent, but there's so many ethical things we have to consider in writing the code or defining the business rules. It's the classic trolley problem, right? And the yeah. trolley problem was more of a thought experiment back in the day, but yeah. now when you actually have to program it in for your literal trolley, uh, mm -hmm. self-driving cars, you have a whole host of ethics. Yeah. It's strange to think that the ethics questions might be what delays it further than the technology issues that it has. Chris, let me ask you about the automation life cycle. When do you think in the automation life cycle ethics needs to be taken into consideration? Honestly, right at the outset, ideally something you see is kind of a bit more commonplace again in regulated industries. Everybody has to take some kind of compliance course that you understand different ethical risk and legal risk. 
I know that's a little bit of a, a novel way of thinking about automation and AI. It's something that's been rattling in my head, honestly, a little bit. My non-robotic head, I'll caveat there. Ideally, when you're getting educated on the potential for leveraging automation and AI as a way to improve a task or a process, there should be some kind of training that people read through, at the very least, be aware of organizations policies and procedures, which typically align with some regulatory regime, depending on what part of the world you're in, mm -hmm. but hopefully something a little bit more robust than that so that you can avoid kind of those unknowns, so to speak, and not hit an ethical tripwire of some kind, especially when you're working with anything touching people, whether it's employees mm -hmm. and really with customer data, there certainly should be like a milestone in a project review or approval process, or even a go live just to kind of check off once again, to make sure that it's okay to use, even collect the data to do something like that in the first place. Part of the recipe, as we all know, of automation is you need to have some data and, and formulas and people tend to focus on the formulas right at the outset, or should you even be collecting that data in the first place? It could be an ethical tripwire, let alone the, um, the usage of that data in a biased formula. Okay. Some of these things could be pretty simple checkoffs, like, oh yeah, like in my paper scanning example, this looks pretty trivial, this should be approved and I can sign off. But for something else, you might need some further review as part of the process before you can even start running your playbook and kicking off the automation project, whether you're doing it a traditional way or in some agile fashion. Lou, I want to return to you earlier. You briefly mentioned a couple of steps you think companies can take to make sure automation is done ethically. Could you elaborate on those a bit more? So the first is to make sure that whenever you're using a machine learning engine, it's been built to avoid bias and to be ethical in its own right. For example, that means if you're building out a machine learning engine, Think about what sort of data you're using to train it. This is where you see a lot of AI implementations fail because a lot of the available data folks will go for is typically more likely to be from white males. Even if you're doing something as simple as training handwriting, you're more likely to get samples from white males than you are from females or from minorities. And as you're setting up these pieces, the data you're using to train it is going to determine the outcomes it can use. Similarly, you know, when you mentioned the system the court was using to predict offenders, that is based on data that already had some of those inherent biases in it. When you're looking at historical data, especially the farther back you go, the more likely you are to see those sorts of concerns. So. The first piece is to make sure that the data you're using and that corpus of knowledge is what you want it to be and there isn't bias in it. The next piece is to make sure that you have the auditability required. So depending on what algorithm you have, you should have a methodology for looking back and being able to give an explanation for how every decision was made. That's not just to maintain the ethics portion, but also just to protect yourself and your business for when you're implementing these sorts of solutions. 
Thank you, Lou. Chris, let me give you a chance to weigh in on how companies can create the transparency that's needed to reduce ethical risk and bias in AI. Well, especially when something is of a sensitive nature, the transparency would certainly be driven from the top. As we mentioned, our top of the U.S. example that just came out in the press, the AI Bill of Rights organizations typically stop, start at the very top with some sort of a blueprint, some kind of framework, potentially accompanying a framework might be some sort of maturity model. That's something we typically like to drive as part of the work that I've done in management consultancy and elsewhere. Out of a framework comes some kind of a maturity model where you might look at, okay, ethically immature to immature. And then in alignment with that, of course, again, I refer often to policies and procedures that align not only with regulatory compliance rules, depending on the part of the world you're in, but also privacy rules, which can be a little problematic. In some parts of the world, privacy is very straightforward, as we see in Europe. In the United States, there's still a bit of a patchwork of privacy regulations where it seems like once in a while you'll read in the press, uh, another U.S. state has come up or is coming out with its own take on privacy. So this can create a bit of a landmine for people to walk through, so to speak, especially with ethical concerns here. But ideally, you have the right subject matter experts in place, some people with legal expertise, obviously ethics or compliance or regulatory expertise. It's very rare that you hear of organizations having professional ethicists or philosophers even that do this sort of work. So typically you see people out of the compliance space that can help with guidelines. And then these help you in turn create the operating models that from that you get playbooks to help create something and run books for after something's created to keep it up and running. Part and parcel with all this, a little bit more bottom-up. I mentioned a little bit earlier the idea of education in the workplace. You see this a lot more in regulated industries, but we're starting to see the idea of AI literacy starting to be discussed. And depending <laughs> on where you see AI sitting in an organization, it could be its own literacy program, or it may fall into a data literacy program. The idea that AI should be a part of the remit of the data and analytics team because they're the people that work with data and those are the people that do models. And typically they're the people working most closely with your data scientists. And they can provide some guidance to the people who may not be data science, but might be doing more simpler forms of automation, like you see in a process automation department. If you're not in a regulated industry, there's going to be potentially good models to look at, say, to look at what people are doing in financial services or healthcare, entertain utilities or even government. Well, I definitely don't want to ignore the AI Bill of Rights that the U.S. government recently released. Lou, what do you think about it, specifically the five principles they defined for organizations to take into consideration? So first, let's start by reiterating for listeners what those five principles are. The first one is safe and effective systems. So any system that's being used should be effective and safe for folks. Pretty self-explanatory. Next, algorithmic discrimination protections. This is some of what we were talking about earlier, making sure that any algorithm being used isn't discriminatory and follows standard laws and regulations. Data privacy is the third one, which is, again, a crucial component of any form of data enterprise. Fourth, we have 
notice and explanation. So if your data is being used in a machine learning model, you should have transparency to understand how and why it's being used. And finally, we have human alternatives, consideration and fallback. Now I should point out a couple of things about these. First, a lot of these are just basic common sense. It makes sense, not just for the consumer, but also for the business themselves to protect themselves. And no, but no business wants to go show up in the news for having a racist Twitter bot. That's terrible press. At the same point, looking at human alternatives, necessary. You call into a contact center, folks get frustrated. They don't want to be talking to a robot anymore. You have to be able to press zero to talk to a human that these aren't anything revolutionary. This is the general things that businesses for the most part are already doing. But aside from that, a lot of this is echoing a very similar piece of actual legislation out of the EU called the AI Act, which puts some teeth behind this. And until we see some of that in the United States, mm -hmm. remember that this is just guidelines for folks to use. Yeah. So. With all that in mind, I'd say that a lot of this is general best practice that most folks should be following anyways. One piece I'd say in here that I see as potentially changing the way things are done today is mm -hmm. the notice and explanation component, right. because a lot of what data is used today, you don't always get notice. And that, mm -hmm. again, is going to depend on where you live and what regional privacy laws there are, but even then it's most likely not going to make a huge change in a consumer's life. There'll just be one more agreement you check at the beginning, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, I would agree with Dr. Lou there. As I was reading through this bill of rights myself and just thought about how everybody uh, I'm sure might not be alone on this podcast, but I, I have some young folks in my family. And I see them on TikTok, nothing in the TikTok experience, at least from my recollection of just looking at it just briefly, does something pop up and say, we're powered by an automated system and some of the content you are seeing might be automatically suggested to you based off of data in, in part informed by what you're looking at or looking for in TikTok. Mm -hmm. uh, right. TikTok's becoming a interesting topic of conversation in the marketing space, because there's a recent study showing that the younger generations, even the youngest generations, the ones that are just old enough to have some kind of buying power are starting to use TikTok as much as, uh, as Google people typically think of Google by default because they're the primary search engine. But now you see people searching for things in other forums as well, and they might not be aware of that. Mm -hmm. If you're using Amazon as your primary way to search for products. Unless you read the, uh, the disclaimers down there at the bottom of the footer, uh, if something doesn't automatically pop up in front of you and tell you that you're, you're using an automated system mm -hmm. and these other caveats, it could be, it could be interesting. I'll put it that way. And on the other side is the usability factor. Part of why so many people are drawn to digital experiences versus the human alternatives, we'll say, yeah. of paper and pen and things like that, or just calling somebody up on the phone. Right. Uh, is the friction of the digital experience. And you see some of these stories in the last couple of years from overseas with the stricter, especially in Western Europe, the stricter privacy rules, 
some people saying that they're practically making certain websites unusable. So there's mm -hmm. going to be, I think, a little bit of a trial and error, test and learn mm -hmm. to kind of navigate what this blueprint actually implies, at least for the United States. Yeah. Lou, let me ask you, some have called for an ethics framework as the foundation upon which any AI technology is created and implemented. What are your thoughts on this? I think it makes sense depending on what sort of framework you put in place. And I think any regulation like this is going to have to come from a government level. Now, if you think about the basics that we were discussing earlier, like the AI Bill of Rights, again, I don't see anyone complaining about this, but putting it into a codified form means that your compliance folks who, again, as Chris said, are generally going to be the folks looking at ethics within an enterprise, since most of them are not hiring philosophers, have something to benchmark against. Mm -hmm. So in general, it's going to make a lot of sense because it gives companies the backbone to look at when they're trying to make these sorts of decisions. One fairly recent example of an ethics framework that I read about, and I, I wanted to bring it up, and Chris, I'll, I'll direct this one to you. In 2019, Google announced that it had created a council to develop an ethics framework primarily to address AI-powered facial recognition and fairness in machine learning. However, within 10 days of its establishment, the council was dissolved due to suspected bias amongst one of the council members. It raises the question, how can people, most, or you could even say all of whom have some sort of biases, how can they effectively play a role in developing a framework to avoid biases in AI? That may be the toughest question we've had today. So sorry for directing it your way. That's okay, because I don't think it's too hard. I mean, again, we mentioned this idea of a, of a blueprint at a high government level. Regulations and compliance, they serve as guardrails. Mm -hmm. yeah, from my vantage point, you would kind of look at the creation of such a framework using the classical model of people processing technology and People might even have like these higher level considerations as within, you know, the notion of BSG uh, and the particular process, certain processes, depending whether or not they're across industry, like uh, a marketing process might have a little bit of a additional ethical review to it because there's that notion of targeting people automatically and they might not be aware of it. Do you need to present some kind of notice that's happening? whether it's with an ad or as Lou mentioned, a offer for some kind of say a lending product or maybe some other product. When you look at something on a shopping website and you go into your Facebook and you get an ad for within minutes. And sometimes it's mind blowing the speed and how fast that happens. I mean, it can kind of creep you out. Creating a framework again, certainly you'd have some initial a consultative group to get together, legal experts, compliance experts subject matter experts in different functions to start wading through and seeing does this fit within an existing regulatory and compliance regime and a risk calculator that we have at the enterprise level, or do we need to create or modify something new? Right. And just to add on there, 
I'd say this is actually probably one of the simplest questions you've asked today, Brad, because we're not reinventing the wheel here. This isn't the first time we've needed to put a group of people together to figure out how to enforce basic ethics. Right? Mm -hmm. If you think about pretty much any HR policy, a lot of the same factors were brought into play. So you need a diverse group of individuals forming a committee to figure this out. This is nothing new. We're just doing it for a new purpose. Very good point, Mr. Liu. Lou, let me ask you about GPT-3. As you know, RPA combined with natural language processing skills has been playing a very big role in areas like contact centers as automation has become integral in, in that function. GPT-3 is one of the largest NLP language models in use and widely considered a breakthrough in AI. It can generate sentences and even write article summaries or generate full stories that are creative in nature just based on a prompt of a few lines. Pretty amazing stuff. However, even GPT-3 has proven in, in recent times to generate problematic content if it's fed with harmful or malicious prompts. So the question for you, Lou, is this a situation where AI algorithms will have to be written to regulate AI algorithms? See, that's a... That's a tricky question, because if you think <laughs> about the GPT-3 example you just gave, it was generating offensive text when given an offensive prompt. So the, the Occam's razor here is, well, don't give it an offensive prompt. And some of that is just going to be basic, what I like to call a potty mouth filter. And I actually didn't come up with that term. That was from IBM. Way back when Watson was on Jeopardy, they uh -huh. were doing a training session and they had the executive producers of Jeopardy in the room and the category was four letter words and Watson dropped the F-bomb. <laughs> and they were like, well, it's a good thing this isn't on national television. This is a practice. You need to fix that. So they put in a potty mouth filter. I think some of the same things just need to go into play here and not necessarily on the output, but sometimes looking at the input itself. Same way where you have safe search options for any other category, if you're doing things, the same principles apply here, where you want to make sure that any use of machine learning or AI is going to be safe and is going yep. to be efficient. Gotcha. Gotcha. Chris, as we automate more and more business processes, will ethical concerns continue to increase in your opinion? I think it depends on the application of automation within particular uh, functional areas and businesses. Mm -hmm. so you think about once upon a time, human resources, for example, this wasn't too much of a concern because human resources and through, you had humans reading resumes and you had humans doing a lot of work with personal data to set up like your benefits and your training and all this you know, learning and development, different things. But now you see the challenge of ethics coming in play. The, the example with automated filtering of resumes based off of gender being potentially sticky. I've heard some things like that have happened 
in the past on a more manual basis where people's first names could be filtered out uh, mm -hmm. by, by people. And you see some of these studies float around on the internet once in a while in the last year or two, where there's different bias just in the selection of candidates. So that's an area where you see ethics being a concern. In the automation space too, there's the kind of the rising interest in this topic of process mining and process analytics. Mm -hmm. You're already seeing a little bit of that tripping some ethical tripwires, so to speak. I believe there's certain parts of Europe that are more regulated than others and are already raised that as a flag to be addressed, that you need people to opt in to have what they're doing at work tracked. Where in the U.S., it's just assumed that you sign off a, a part of your employment agreement. And if you're walking around the hallways or in and out of buildings, or you're using certain computer systems or anything, you're on your screen or your voicemail, those things could potentially be fodder for some kind of process mining or process analysis exercise. Certainly going to be much more sensitivity when you add the additional layer, say, of financial services and healthcare mm -hmm. and energy and things or things that are sensitive at a more macro level, such as right. the government whatsoever. Think about it like this, Brad, all these processes, whenever you're automating an existing process, the ethics concerns were already thought about. It's just a matter of who's completing it. Is it a person or is it an automation? And I would argue that for the most part, you have a lot more transparency with an automation than you do with a human being. Because of the auditability. Exactly. That, yeah. You don't know if the banker you happen to be talking to has any form of bias. And there's no way to track how those decisions were made. Whereas right. with an automation, you have a deeper level of insight and auditability. Right. Good point. So, Lou, you've been on the podcast in the past to discuss the next phase of automation, one that is likely to be much more autonomous. How does this present even more ethical challenges? There's a decent amount of them, I'll be honest, because if you remember the last time I was on, we talked about how the ultimate goal of automation was to automate as much of it as possible with the eventual goal of the world where if you were doing something that was repetitive, the COE could get a pop-up that says, hey, it looks like Brad's doing a repetitive task. Would you like to automate it? He clicks OK and it's done. Right. Now, when we first talked about that, it was, it seemed like kind of a pipe dream. But with the technology we've put in place since then, we have automated enough to shorten development cycles by anywhere from 40 to 75%. So we're a decent ways down that path. But a key portion of that is task mining, mm -hmm. which uses desktop based recorders to monitor what human employees are doing and separate out multitasking and digitize that into a model, right? Doing that involves a lot of the privacy concerns that Chris was just mentioning. And you need to make sure that when you're monitoring folks, you're monitoring them in a controlled and governed fashion. So right. at SSNC Blue Prism, the way we do this is by applying a whole bunch of privacy controls. Sometimes the uh, individual users have the ability to start or stop the recording functionality. You could set it up to obscure sensitive data, redact PII, or also only look at specific applications or exclude applications. So you could say, I only want to record what they're doing in these five specific applications. 
or work. Or you mm -hmm. could say, I want to exclude anything from Facebook.com because that clearly won't be relevant. But the fact right. is you have to have consideration for pieces like that and for the privacy of not just the workers, but the customers who will be having their data run through these systems. Any final thoughts today before we bring our podcast to conclusion? So one of the things folks often don't think about and this is an area that was addressed in the Journal of AI Robotics and Workplace Automation recently, is the ability for automation to improve upon the existing ethics that are in our workplace. For example, automations can do things like monitor performance reviews to look for any instances of bias mm -hmm. or help with recruiting and give that layer of insight that otherwise we wouldn't have. So in general, I think the application of AI, machine learning, and automation to the workplace will improve the ethics that are being maintained rather than mm. complicate them. I would second that. It's certainly one of the, one of the positives of automation is that it improves quality, reduces uh, errors. And if you have these ethical oversight boards, just to make sure that things don't go off the, the rails in the wrong direction in the long run, when you're ensuring that people and or digital workers or both mm -hmm. are doing what they're supposed to be doing, and you have some automated checks in there, you will reduce risk. So, mm -hmm. and you're seeing some of that, especially in financial services, where there's large scale applications of pilots going on with automated scanning of call center transcripts and other forms of communication to make sure that the traders aren't communicating with each other in forms that they're not supposed to, which I know is something that's happened in some of the European financial markets not too long ago. Thank you both for ending us on a positive note on the ethics topic. As I mentioned at the beginning, this conversation about ethics and automation and AI is an important one to have, but it should not reflect poorly on either of these areas. They're doing a ton of good in the world, as we know. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for being on the podcast today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've certainly learned a lot just listening to both of you. So thank you for sharing your perspective. You guys have a lot to offer on this topic, and I, I know it's going to be informative for our listeners. In the history of the podcast, I believe this is the first time we've ever talked about ethics in intelligent automation. So thank you for helping us cover it sufficiently. Brad, appreciate the time today. Always happy to jump onto these. I think the future is exciting and the application of machine learning and automation will just continue to make our lives better and easier. I echo what Dr. Lou said. Thank you. Uh, Brad, not only on behalf of myself, but I'll, I'll speak up on behalf of Henry Institute Publications. It was a lot of fun pioneering the issue on this topic. There are certainly some books coming out here and there in the press lately that are starting to delve into the topics of ethical machines and ethics in AI and gaining away from maybe the fear mongering that goes way back to Isaac Eisenmouth and iRobot and science fiction and the scary robots and more towards the positive aspects and the rewards of automation and AI. All the best to you both, gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to Transform Now. 
For more insightful discussions on digital transformation and more, check out our podcast channel where you'll find all of our previous episodes. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. For more information about digital transformation and the future of work, check out blueprism.com to learn how SSNC Blueprism's digital workforce is enabling enterprise transformation now.